we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26 today. Looking forward to exploring it with you. Uh, let's turn to God in prayer and ask for his help uh, to uh, understand and to live out what God has to say to us this morning. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you know the hearts of all and you are sovereign in all things. Fill me now with your spirit that I may preach your word faithfully and clearly. And by your spirit, open our hearts to your word, that turning to you in repentance and faith, we may live lives that please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, where is God when Christian leaders fall? Where is God when Christian leaders fall? Recent years, it seems, have seen the downfall of one Christian leader after another. Uh, the most recent announcement was of sexual misconduct charges surrounding the famous apologist Ravi Zacharias, who died of cancer last year. He was accused, among other things, of inappropriate sexual relations with women in the spas that he owned. Before that, it was Steve Timmers, CEO of the Acts 29 Church Planting Network, accused of abusive leadership in the church that he pastored, the Crowded House. Before that, it was Bill Hybels, accused of sexual misconduct, and Mark Driscoll, accused of being domineering, verbally violent, arrogant, and quick-tempered. Now, of course, those are just the famous cases. The same pattern is no doubt repeated in church after church, but we never hear about it. Uh, in each case, when a Christian leader falls, the damage done to the church is immense. Uh, hurt and disillusion, some walk away from the church. Uh, others walk away from Christ as well. Uh, gospel witness is tarnished. And ministry programs grind to a halt. We may well ask, where is God in all this? Why would God allow something so dreadful to happen? How are we to respond? Well, in today's passage, we consider the fall of the most high-profile, I guess, Christian leader to fall in human history, and that is the fall of Judas Iscariot. It was an event that the early church had to come to terms with before their gospel mission to the nations could proceed. Well, first, let's remind ourselves of the context. Uh, the book of Acts opens with the risen Lord Jesus appearing to his disciples over 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 1, verse 8, he commissions them for their mission to the nations. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But we see in the rest of the chapter there's two things that have to happen first. The first is that the disciples must receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, then you will be my witnesses. And so in verses 9 to 11, the risen Lord Jesus ascends to heaven on the clouds. He is exalted as the glorious Son of Man, the King of Kings. And he is there, ready, in chapter 2, to pour out his Holy Spirit on his people to empower them for their global mission. Uh, the second thing that must happen, which is our passage today, uh, is that they need to choose a replacement, Apostle for Judas. Well, Luke sets this important occasion in the context of prayer, and we're at point one. 
devoted to prayer. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, throughout his gospel, Luke has had a particular emphasis on the prayerfulness of Jesus. And you might remember on the night before Jesus had appointed the original 12 apostles, which included Judas Iscariot, uh, Jesus had prayed all night. At Luke chapter 6, verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. And so the apostles, following Jesus' example, they devote themselves to prayer as they prepare for their global mission. See, Jesus may no longer be physically with them, but they could continue in fellowship with him through prayer. It's a simple point that we would do well to remember. Prayer is such a key aspect of our relationship with God. That though we cannot see God, that we cannot see Christ physically, we have a real relationship as we bring our prayers to God in Jesus' name. Moreover, prayer is key as we prepare for those big decisions regarding the leadership of the church and as we prepare to engage in global, global mission, in all these important matters, it is absolutely vital that we entrust ourselves to the sovereign will of God, that we seek his face, that we ask for his guidance and strength. We cannot and we dare not engage in the mission of the gospel without first devoting ourselves to prayer. Now, notice here it's not just the apostles who are praying, but indeed that the whole congreg congregation, including the women and Jesus' family. Now, this prayer is not just for the spiritual elite. It is for the whole church. And so we may ask ourselves, is my first response to serving God and his people in the world prayer? Am I vigilant in prayer? lest I be so busy in the activities of the church that I fail to depend on God for his help and strength. Devoted to prayer. Well, it is in this context of prayer that we then learn of the fate of Judas, and we're at point two now, the fate of Judas. Now, the key point that we see in verses 15 to 20 is that despite the immense tragedy of Judas' betrayal and demise, God remains fully in control from beginning to end. God is sovereign, working out his purposes in and through the evil of Judas. Now, that will be a key point that Luke develops at length throughout the book of Acts. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. No opposition, no evil forces, no apparent failures of his people, no persecution can stop the gospel moving forward. No 
pandemics are going to stop the gospel moving forward. Well, in chapters, verses 15 to 17, Peter boldly addresses the issue of Judas's downfall. Far from discrediting the ministry of Jesus, Peter explains that it was anticipated and foretold in the word of God. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And so Peter reminds the gathered congregation that Judas's betrayal of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. Uh, in verse 20, he points specifically to Psalm 69, verse 25, which predicted the fate of Judas, and Psalm 109, verse 8, which spoke of his replacement. Uh, indeed, Psalm 69 was one of the key psalms that Jesus fulfilled as he went to the cross. Hated without cause, attacked with lies, bearing reproach for God's sake, given sour wine to drink. It's all in Psalm 69. Let's read from verse 24. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And so Peter rightly recognizes the fulfillment of this psalm in the downfall of Judas, taking his own life, receiving no forgiveness, blotted out from the righteous. He fulfills this psalm so tragically. Now, it was not the only passage that Peter could have looked to. Uh, John 13, verse 18, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It was no doubt a tragedy that was very difficult for the early disciples to comprehend. How, how could their dear friend Judas, who, they, who had spent three years with Jesus, the very perfection of love, goodness, and grace, how could he have turned on Jesus and betrayed him? It's unthinkable. And yet Peter rightly recognizes that even this great tragedy was in the hand of God. Now, indeed, John chapter 6, verse 70, we're told that Jesus, Judas was specifically chosen by Jesus to be an apostle, knowing full well what he would do. John 6, 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It ought to be of great assurance to us to know that God is absolutely sovereign over evil. To know that when evil prevails in this world, it does not mean that God has lost control. To be sure, God never does evil. He is perfectly good. And God never promotes evil. He is perfectly just. 
But in his total sovereignty, God permits evil, he predicts evil, indeed he works through evil to achieve his good purposes. Judas, with a corrupt and greedy heart, betrays his Lord for money. God, in his goodness and love, gives his Son to be sacrificed on the cross for the salvation of the world. Uh, that truth is captured so well in Genesis 50, verse 20. There Joseph addresses his brothers who had uh, perpetuated such evil against him. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. His brothers do great evil. God, in his sovereignty, uses it for his good. We see the same idea expressed in Peter's Pentecost preaching in chapter 2. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Human beings wickedly put Jesus to death. Judas, with corrupt heart, betrays his Lord. But in all of it, God achieves his perfect plan, prophesied long ago in the scriptures, to save the world. And so when we see evil prevail in the church, when we see pastors fall into sin, or Christians fall away from the faith, or Christian marriages break down, or Christians suffering dreadful persecution, or, or whatever the evil may be, we can be assured God is still sovereign, and God is at work, even in all that mess, all that evil, achieving his good purposes in and through it all. And when we see evil in our world, in our community, in our workplace, even in our family, we can be assured God is still sovereign. God is still building his kingdom. The sovereign plan of God is not derailed by the wicked actions of humanity, no matter how evil they may be. God is sovereign over evil. And yet, even as we affirm here the sovereignty of God over evil, we must in no way diminish the responsibility of human beings for their sin. And so in verses 18 to 19, we see the horrific fate of Judas. Verse 18, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akudama, that is, field of blood. And, and, and all this in fulfilment of Psalm 69, verse 25. May his camp become desolate. Let there be no one to dwell in it. Now, Judas' fate is so sad, isn't it? That in fulfilment of Psalm 69, he finds no opportunity for repentance at all. He's certainly overcome by remorse and regret, but instead of coming to Jesus in forgiveness, he takes his own life in the most tragic and gruesome circumstances. He doesn't live long enough to hear Peter's Pentecost sermon addressed to the crowds who had called for Jesus' death. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
and he wouldn't hear the, the offer of forgiveness that followed to that crowd. Verse 37, when they heard this, they, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. If only, if only Judas had come to Jesus in repentance, confessed his sin like Peter who had denied Jesus three times, he could have been restored. He could have been forgiven. But he didn't, just as Psalm 69 predicted. His name was blotted out from among the righteous. It was a supreme tragedy. Brothers and sisters, God's sovereignty over evil in no way diminishes or denies the reality of human depravity and sin. Human wickedness is evil, and God will hold it to account, even as he uses it for his good purposes. I think Judas here is to be a wake-up call for every one of us. If even one of Jesus' own closest disciples can fall, then there is always the same possibility for us. If great Christian leaders can fall who preach the word of God to thousands, can we not also fall likewise? We must take our sin seriously, put it to death. We must not let the reality of God's sovereignty over sin make us comfortable with our sin. We are to confess it. We are to repent of it. We are to come to Jesus in faith. Now, it may be for some of us this morning that we have a sin in our past that we are particularly uh, dismayed by, that we deeply regret. And I say to you, please don't hide it and don't let it eat away at your soul as it did for Judas. Come to Jesus in repentance. Now, for brothers and sisters, our fate need not be the fate of Judas. Now, the whole reason Jesus came and died on the cross was so that he might offer forgiveness to sinful people like you and me. Now, on the cross, Jesus took on himself all the sin and the punishment that we deserve for our rejection of God. He suffered there in our place. He bore the wrath of God we deserve so that we might be spared. Remember that criminal who hung by Jesus on the cross, a violent murderer who knew he deserved his fate, but he turned to Jesus in faith Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he was forgiven by Jesus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. We must understand that there is no sin that is beyond forgiveness. No matter what we have done, no matter how bad it was, we can come to Jesus. We can have a fresh start. We can have hope. We can have forgiveness. Now, that is true not only of our struggle with sin, but when we struggle with those deep depressive thoughts 
that tempt us to take our life, that some of us may struggle with those things. If that is you, no matter how dark it seems, no matter how anxious or despairing you may feel, you must always remember that with Jesus in your life, there is always hope. Never give in to those, those thoughts that all is lost. Promise to God today that you will never do such a thing as Judas did in taking his life. Promise to, to God today that if those thoughts ever come, you will turn to a friend or a pastor, that you allow them to remind you of God's love, remind you of the hope and the forgiveness that, that Jesus offers to you. Promise that you'll see a counsellor. He'll help you to process those thoughts and to press on in serving him. With Jesus there, there is always hope. There is always forgiveness. There is always strength to press on. Our fate should not be as Judas. Well, in verses 20 to 26, a replacement is chosen for Judas. And we're now at point three, choosing a replacement. Now, I guess we may ask, why does Judas need to be replaced? Um, why must there be 12 apostles and, and not 11? Uh, well, the first reason is because that is what is prophesied in Psalm 109, verse 8. Let another take his office. The scriptures anticipated the need to replace Judas. Uh, and so the, the apostles, the disciples, they obey God's word. Uh, God is sovereign not only over Judas's fate, but also over Judas's replacement. But of course, there's more here. That the reason why they needed to have 12 apostles is related to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. That the 12 tribes of Israel were the, were the full people of God. And so if the church is to be led by 12 apostles, that indicates that they are the new people of God, the true Israel. And no longer restricted only to ethnic Jews, but now for all Jew and Gentile who believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, the twelve apostles. Well, that was spoken of by Jesus in Luke 22. He said to them, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, in verse 21, we see the required qualifications for this replacement apostle. Uh, verse 21, so one of the, the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And so firstly, the new apostle had to have been taught by Jesus, present throughout his public ministry. Secondly, the, the new apostle had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus so that he could bear witness to the resurrection. And thirdly, the new apostle had to be personally chosen by the Lord Jesus, like the other 11. Now, that criteria is crucial because there are many today who will go about calling themselves apostles of Jesus Christ. 
And on that basis, they then claim that they have this elevated relationship with God, through which God gives them words of prophecy that are not in accordance with Scripture, that God empowers them to do all manner of miracles to grow his kingdom. But by this criterion, given in the word of God, either those apostles are very old, they would have to be 2,000 years old at least, or they are not in fact apostles at all. Rather, they are liars, uh, twisting the scriptures for their own purposes. Now, if a person is wrong on such a key and basic point, uh, falsely calling themselves an apostle when they don't meet the criteria, then we must be very wary of listening to anything else that they may say. Such people frequently use the title of apostles simply to justify their false teaching to put themselves out of reach of correction or rebuke. Well, there were but 12 apostles. There are no modern-day apostles. Uh, Paul, the apostle, was added later, the apostle to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 9. But on this criteria, criteria he was fully qualified. And in Galatians 2, his apostleship was fully recognized by the other apostles. Well, verse 23, we find that there are two who fulfill these qualifications. Now, verse 23, uh, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. Now, notice how they choose the successful candidate here. It's, it's not democratic, democratic, is it? Uh, they don't have uh, some kind of election. Uh, verse 24, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the apostles. Uh, and so in making this very important decision, they prayed to Jesus that he would make the choice clear. See, they, they want to depend not on their human wisdom, but on God's sovereign choice. Now, that is very wise indeed, isn't it? When we are appointing someone to leadership in the church, we ought to pray to God that he would make his choice clear. Well, there's a number of things here that deserve comment. Firstly, the prayer itself, uh, addressed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they pray, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Now, we know that they are praying to the Lord Jesus for two reasons. Uh, firstly, Jesus is called the Lord Jesus, just a few verses earlier in verse 21. Uh, secondly, in chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that it was Jesus who chose the original disciple, uh, original apostles. Uh, we can also read of that in Luke chapter 6. And so it is Jesus they are praying to, to choose the replacement apostle. Now, it is very unusual to have prayers addressed to Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, apart from this occasion, there are, to my knowledge, only two other instances. Uh, the first, Acts 7.59, where Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then Revelation 22.20, where John cries out, come Lord Jesus. 
Everywhere else in the New Testament, prayers are addressed to the Father. John 16, Jesus instructs us to pray to the Father in his name. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray our Father in heaven. Jesus prays to the Father. The apostles on most other occasions pray to the Father as well. And so we see here that that although praying to Jesus is not the normal pattern of Christian prayer, normally our prayers should be addressed to the Father. In these verses, we at least have one precedent that it is okay for us to do so. Well, the second interesting feature of these verses is how they make their choice. Uh, Verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, lots were sometimes used in the Old Testament uh, uh, to choose leaders, such as King Saul in 1 Samuel 10. And uh, it was done in the belief that God's sovereignty extended even over the apparent randomness of casting lots. We read in Proverbs 16, verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so they trust that Matthias has been chosen by Jesus himself. Now, of course, we must be very careful how we apply this. The fact that God is sovereign over the roll of a dice or the flip of a coin doesn't give us an excuse to be lazy in our decision-making. Let's remember that the disciples first devoted themselves to prayer, then they turned to the scriptures for God's word on the matter, then they prayed again in the light of that, then in their wisdom they put forward suitable candidates that were in accordance to the word of God, and only then did they turn to lots to break a tie between two equally good candidates. And so when we make decisions, we must make sure we do so prayerfully, Uh, in accordance to the revealed word of God in the scriptures and not just be lazy and flip a coin. Now, I'd recommend the book uh, Guidance and the Voice of God uh, if you want to think uh, a bit more about this. Well, as we conclude, I want to read this quote from David Cook who helpfully summarizes the point of this passage in this book here, Teaching Acts. So he says this on page 59. Christ's involvement with the election of Matthias is reassuring. It shows that Jesus is neither uninterested nor uninvolved in his church. He continues to lead and guide from heaven through his spirit. Nothing is outside the scope of his control. Both Judas's betrayal and Matthias's election are in fulfillment of God's words. And then a page later, he applies uh, this chapter and he says, he says this, Active planning, strategizing, wise application of good business principles, while all useful, are insufficient for discernment and growth in the church. Prayer to the ascended Christ is essential. A desire to engage in ministry activity must not crowd out prayer. Jesus is responsive to our prayers. Uh, It's very helpful reminders as we continue on in our mission of bringing the gospel to the nations. We've been reminded today that Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, actively building his church. 
We've been reminded that we must be prayerfully dependent upon him as we seek to choose leaders for the church to advance his mission. And we've also been reminded that God is sovereign even over evil to achieve his good purposes, that nothing, not even uh, the wicked betrayal of Jesus by Judas, could stop the advance of his kingdom. And so when we look around this world and we, and we see evil reigning, or we see pandemics prevailing, or we see chaos in the church, we must not despair. God is sovereignly at work, building his kingdom through it all, and nothing will stop its advance. And when we look around, we, see, we read of church leaders who fall, or Christians fall away, or Christian marriages fall apart, or dreadful persecution breaks out. Do not despair. God is sovereignly at work, building his kingdom through it all, and nothing will stop the gospel's advance. Instead, we depend on God in prayer. We looked to his word to instruct us how we should go. And we trust God's sovereignty as we continue his mission of gathering a people for himself from every tribe, nation, language and people. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is sovereignly at work building his church in this world. We thank you for reminding us this morning that nothing, not even the failings of your people, can stop your kingdom advancing. Help us to prayerfully uh, depend on you as we engage in this mission. Help us to choose leaders that are in accordance with your word and will. Help us to trust you when people fall and evil prevails. May your kingdom advance. May your name be glorified among all the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.